0: This last night of Jesus' earthly ministry is, is covered more exhaustively in the Gospel of John than in any other Gospel. And in fact, you could argue that it's, it's in many ways the centerpiece of the narrative of the Gospel of John. Uh, 21 chapters. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Five out of 21 from the the washing of his disciples' feet in that extraordinary leadership lesson to his prayer that we've spent the last three weeks talking about in chapter 17, concerned with this one night. It is now probably just after midnight on the, on the day that Jesus will go, will go to the cross as we come into chapter 18, the, the garden to which Jesus and his disciples go is not named in the Gospel of John. We know from the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that it was called Gethsemane. And the term garden is a fairly broad term. It almost certainly was an olive grove because that's what we have there on the Mount of Olives, so called, so named, because of the, of the olive groves on its slopes tradition holds that there is a particular olive grove there that is to this day identified as the garden of gethsemane and it may well be gethsemane means oil press and so this garden would have been a place where perhaps various olive groves on the slopes of the mount of olives brought their brought their crop to have them pressed for the olive oil that was (laughs) such an important commodity then and hey now of good olive oil At the end of chapter 14, Jesus has left the upper room. The text in the last verse of chapter 14 has Jesus saying, rise and let us go from here. So while they've remained in the upper room, chapters 13 and 14, chapters 15, 16, and 17, they've been been walking across the moonlit city. And I say moonlit because this is the Passover weekend and Passover weekend always falls on a full moon so there would have been a full moon this night. We come now to the time when they went out, according to 18.1, but they didn't go out from the upper room, they'd left the upper room some time ago, they went out from the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem to descend a little ways down to the, to the valley floor of the valley through which this, this brook Kidron flows and then to begin to ascend to the lower slopes of the... Well, if you, if, if, you, if you grew up in the southeast, if you grew up in Florida, the Mount of Olives is a mountain. If you grew up in Colorado, it's a small hill. But they, they come there to the Garden of Gethsemane on the base of the Mount of Olives. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, the arrest of Jesus. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. the servant's name was malchus so jesus said to peter put your sword into its sheath shall i not drink the cup that the father has given me we see in this moment yet another portrait of our savior we see here three things about jesus that i'd like to walk through in this morning roman number 1 we see the betrayed savior jesus the betrayed savior we've made it clear again and again, and we will continue to make it clear again and again, that there is no such thing as a former follower of Jesus. Those who come to Jesus in authenticity, those who become born again, those who are saved, are transformed by their relationship with Jesus to become new creatures. That transformation in nature is a permanent thing. We are not flawless, but we are passionate. We follow Jesus, we followers of Jesus. And we do not lose our salvation. While there has never been a former follower of Jesus, there have been down the ages There remain to this day any number of false followers of Jesus. Who, like Judas, they hear everything there is to be said. They they experience Judas himself witnessed repeated miracles, but never actually gave his heart to Jesus. Judas was in it ultimately for selfish reasons. So what would turning his back on Jesus finally and fully require of him, and what would it get him? Well, letter A, his price. What it would require of him is a piece of intelligence information the enemies of Jesus didn't have. It had come to be the case by late in the week. Actually, it had been the case for some time, but by the resurrection of Lazarus, the Jewish leaders had locked in on the fact they wanted Jesus dead. And they wanted him dead in an official, public way. So they wanted the cooperation of the Roman government, which was the occupying, overseeing government of the province of Judea, They wanted the Romans to have Jesus publicly executed. Well, to do that, you've got to arrest him. And Jesus still had sort of a a lingering public persona. He had had been in public in the city as early as, or as late as as Tuesday of, of this week. But he'd been surrounded by people and the idea of arresting him in that setting and having to deal with some sort of riotous aftermath was distasteful. What they needed to know was where could they take him privately? Where could they take him secretly? Where and when could they bag him? Judas knew. He knew about Jesus' frequent, apparently, evening trips to this olive grove outside the city and so that knowledge is what Judas sold to the Jewish leaders. Well, what did he get? What was his payoff? What was his prize? Let her be on your outline. At least three things. First, he got a new fortune. 30 pieces of silver. I'll talk more about that amount and its historical and prophetic significance and beyond the notes this week. But for now, that's a nice sum. It's not necessarily life-changing money in today's terms. It's probably give or take $400. But, you know. And it's not that Judas was new to wrongful gain made as a false follower of Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 6 tells us that along and along during his relationship with the disciples, he's been embezzling the whole time. That, That such little treasury as the disciples had the coin purse of the disciples was in his keeping and he had his hand down in it all the time so this this self centered thievery was an old habit of his look here's the deal up to this day (laughs) disobedience to Christ in the matter of money will wield for you short-term profit. It really will. Every one of you who gave this week took a reduction in your bank account by the amount that you gave. I know it's shocking to hear me admit that, but there is a short-term mathematical impact to giving. Whereas if you were disobedient and did not give and haven't given lately, you get to keep that money. So disobedience can be short-term financially profitable. I say short-term, we'll talk about in a moment how long Judas got to keep his money. Not only did he gain new fortune, he he got new fame. This this act makes Judas more famous than he otherwise would be. How do I know that? Well, I'll show you. I'm not going to take the time to actually do this. Written out, we'll make it a thought experiment. I want you in your head, and I want you to be truthful. You can use your fingers, but you'll run out if you're really, really good. I want you to count off to yourself by name the 12 disciples of Jesus, the 12 original disciples of Jesus. Go ahead. Most of you can probably get to three or four. If you think about it for a minute, you can probably get to five or six. Some of you who really like memorizing lists might make it to all 12. But here's what I bet. I bet none of you left off Judas. Judas got remembered. Now, if you were writing the list out, you'd probably put an asterisk by Judas and a footnote. Because he's in the 12, but he's not really a follower of Christ. He's phony. But he's, you know, you might not have remembered Simon the Zealot. You might have. But you remember Judas. It's, It's amazing to me how many authors, speakers, internet famous people, have, have gained their 15 minutes of fame by being famous for being an ex-follower of Jesus. The, the term that's popular today is they are deconstructing their faith. That's what it's fashionable to call it these days. The biblical term is apostasy, by the way. The end of it is hell. Hell. And again, these are not former followers of Jesus. These are those who were false followers of Jesus like Judas before them. Not only new fortune and new fame, but he got new friends. He spent years of his life hanging out with 11 other unemployed, former lots of professions following a homeless, unemployed Jewish carpenter. Yay. But now he's in with the cool kids. The most powerful people in Jerusalem are slapping him on the back, giving him money and calling him friend. The, the Roman government, who's the most powerful force on earth in terms of political power at this moment, they love him. For the first time in his life, Judas Iscariot's one of the cool kids. I so praise God for the fellowship of the body of Christ. What a treasure it is that God has given us each other. And we can talk. We can love one another. can go about the messy business of having our lives tangled up with the lives of other people who love Jesus. What a gift. But we're not the majority. There's never been a time, there's never been a place in all of human culture where Christianity was the majority viewpoint. We've never been the cool kids. So you if, you, if you decide you want to loudly and famously turn your back on Jesus and come out loud and proud as a former Christian, you will have cooler friends out in the culture than any of us followers of Christ will ever have. They'll come on your podcast and talk about how cool you are, welcome you to their talk shows, ride you around in Fancy limits, whatever. I say all of these things are short-lived. Judas Iscariot is a wonderful, terrible example of that. Judas Iscariot in remorse, but not repentance. Repentance is, Lord, I acknowledge that you have changed my mind about my sin, and I hate it. That's Repentance. Remorse is, oh, I've done a terrible thing, oh, I've done a terrible thing, oh, I've done a terrible thing, full stop. Judas got to remorse, he never got to repentance, and Judas took his own life before the sunrise of this night. Judas was dead before Jesus was by some hours. The betrayed Savior. Oh, Roman numeral two, however, the the authoritative Savior, and I, I, I love this moment. I love this moment. Uh, Verse three speaks of Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers. Now I need to look into that word with you for a moment, that word band. As you you sort of run the internal imagination videotape of this moment, it's it's easy to imagine that that Judas probably had a dozen guys with him, maybe, maybe a couple of dozen guys with him. But that word band makes that pretty impossible. If John here in his gospel is using that word in the technical sense as it overwhelmingly usually is used. The word here translated band is one-tenth of a cohort. And a cohort is 6,000 soldiers. So it's very possible that there were six out of the thousand soldiers assigned to Jerusalem by the Roman government, it's very possible that 600 of them have come out of the fortress Antonia that night to encircle and arrest Jesus of Nazareth. you say they would never send that many soldiers for the account of one man. In the book of Acts, and we have them broken down by position, late in the book of Acts, when, when the governor of the province of Judea wants to have Paul, the prisoner, escorted from Jerusalem out to the capital at Caesarea on the coast, there are 470 soldiers involved in the escort detail for one prisoner. So it's not unreasonable, it's not inconsistent to picture perhaps as many as 600, certainly hundreds of soldiers involved here in this arrest. That's important as we see the authoritative savior act, letter A in his definite purpose. Verse four, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Knowing all that would happen to him. Verse four, he knew because it had been predetermined from before the foundation of the world. He is resolved to the cross. It is the assignment his Father has given him. And he is resolute in his pursuit of the cross as the climactic act of his earthly ministry. He's going to the cross on behalf of those who will one day spend eternity in heaven with him. He's going to the cross. I caution you, when you look at the accounts ahead where we'll be looking into the trials and crucifixion of Jesus, if you you wish to, not wish, if you see him as a victim, see him only as the victim of his father's wrath because the father, according to Romans 8, is going to not spare the son. He is going to endure the full out blast of his father's wrath, which blast you ought to have eternally endured. Of that, he is a victim. As the rest of it, Roman nails and crosses, large bodies of soldiers, Judas's betrayal, all means to Jesus's end. Jesus is the designer of his own sacrifice on the cross. He is always seeking his glory and our good, and that comes into no more clear focus than the cross. So he here has a definite purpose on this night in the garden. Not only his definite purpose, but let her be his demonstrated power. His demonstrated power. Now this this moment can hide in the language of our English translations. But this is what happens. Jesus steps forward and asks, whom do you seek? And I know there are some other details. Judas points him out to the soldiers with a kiss on the cheek. The other gospels make that clear. But here we have Jesus does step forward and identify or ask, who do you seek? They tell me we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and in our English text, Jesus says, "I am He." and it's almost as though Jesus is saying, "I'm your guy, I'm the one." In the original, the word, there is no word underlying the "he." Jesus didn't technically say, "I am He." When they asked Whom are you seeking? Or when Jesus asked, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus stood and faced them. And as he said out of a burning bush some centuries before, what Jesus said was, I am. And he knocked them around like a set of bowling pins. Some commentators, not many, I believe utterly erroneous, say that what those soldiers did when they uh, drew back and fell to the ground, in verse six, is they adopted defensive postures, thinking Jesus had a gang of ruffians ready to come at them. Not if they were a band. They had overwhelming force. There was nobody else that could take on 600 Roman soldiers. They didn't take up defensive positions. They got knocked on their backsides by the power of the living God pronouncing the highest and holiest of his names. You say, Brother Russell, how can you really know that? Well, in a moment, he's going to tell them whom they can and can't arrest. Once you understand what he just did, that's perfectly. If, if he didn't do that, his next interchange with them makes little sense. But as, as they get up, from that demonstration of his power, we come to let her see his defended people. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Who who gets to do that? You're here to round up the whole gang, but I tell you what, I'll go with you. They aren't. I am dictating the terms of my own arrest. And you know why I'm able to do it? Because you're still picking Gethsemane dirt out of the joints of your armor. And in this moment we're all real clear who's calling the shots and it's omnipotence it's god the son who stands before you and here is what you will and won't do you know what i see in that moment what i need to see in that moment that's there in his definite purpose i see his awareness Because I've got things going on in my life right now that are not going exactly the way I wish they were. I bet you do too. And I have an ongoing prayerful conversation with the Lord going, Lord, this keeps going like this and I want so badly for it to go like this. I want this outcome that's not happening. I want this to go this way and it's not happening. And the temptation is to say, Lord, do you even know? Well, he knows everything. He has awareness. And then in his demonstrated power, Lord, Lord, I guess this one is so bad even you can't fix it. (laughs) No. His power is limitless. And whatever it is you have going on right now that he, he has not yet untangled, it's not because he's powerless. You may well be. You may have any number of situations in your life that are going to overpower you, but you've got nothing going on in your life that can overpower him. Ever. And then love. Even as he begins what will be hours of horrific torture leading to horrific death, he loves his disciples and says, not them, me. Lord, if you really loved me, you'd give me your way. I mean, pardon me, you'd give me my way on this. Sometimes he's not gonna give you your way, but it's not because he lacks awareness and it's not because he lacks power and it's not because he lacks love. And time and it may take a lot of it. Time will vindicate that even as he failed to give you your way in the summer of 22, he in fact was pursuing his glory in your life and your good. He will be vindicated for that. Don't doubt it. And when he doesn't act, it's because he knows more than you do. Never because he, whacked, he lacks awareness, power, or love. Finally, Roman three, we come to Jesus, the gracious savior. Oh, Simon Peter. If you track a character study of Simon Peter through all four Gospels, what you will find is Simon Peter was given to being impetuous. Simon Peter liked to blurt. Simon Peter liked to jump. He lived his whole life going ready, fire, aim. That was just his style. So Simon Peter decides, oh, we're not gonna do this. Our English Bible says he had a sword. The word there is large dagger. I like to imagine it was his trusty old fishing knife. After all, he was a career fisherman, and I've never met a serious fisherman that didn't keep a good fishing knife handy. Surely he had one with him. So he, letter A, the militant disciple decides, I'm gonna take my shot. I'm gonna defend Jesus. You can bet he wasn't aiming for anybody's right ear. And he lops off the right ear of Malchus. Who, by the way, is not named anywhere else. All four Gospels tell the story of this guy losing his ear. His name is only given in John. And... uh, restoration of his ear look down at the text of the gospel of John John doesn't even mention it ah but Luke gives us this additional detail in Luke twenty-two fifty-one 51 that Jesus put his ear back on now my curiosity gets the better of me that John and only John tells us this guy's name is Malchus John know that now I know you could say well the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the gospel of John was being written decades later probably in the AD 90s just gave the apostle John this dude's name and you know what maybe one thing I know for sure that when they came to the garden that night they weren't wearing lanyards hello my name is Malchus you know on a like some convention goer or something Nah. Uh, I, invite, I invite you to speculate with me for a moment. How many of y'all are side sleepers? You're not a back sleeper, you're not a tummy sleeper, you're a side sleeper. Okay, okay, all right, all right. Have you ever had that moment when you're shifting around to get comfortable on your side and your ear gets folded wrong? You ever landed on top of your folded ear you your, oh, come on, am I the only person? Okay, some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, I wonder if Malchus was a side sleeper. And I wonder if after this night, for the rest of his life, every time he flopped over on his right side, he said, Lord, thank you that that's not flush. Thank you that I have to deal with the fact that I got an ear and I'm gonna sleep on my side, I gotta make sure I account for it. Because it came off one time, and Jesus put it back. My glasses would be terribly crooked if I. You know what I think? I think he got saved. We know in the book of Acts, thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem are gonna be saved, some of them well placed in Jewish leadership. You know what I think? I think he and John got to know each other. I think he and John sat together and told, shared the story in years to come after this, of this night and this moment and this merciful deed by a Savior. By the way, in case you ever get on Jeopardy and get Bible as a category, this is the last healing miracle in the earthly ministry of Jesus. In a ministry that had lots of major miracles in it, the last time Jesus heals somebody physically in his earthly ministry is when he reattaches, reattaches Malchus' ear. If you ever get a double jeopardy on that and go all in, tithe. Um, I love this congregation. The stuff y'all let me get away with. All right. All right. A merciful savior. By the way, aren't you glad Jesus is merciful to his enemies? And before you would ever say no, remember you were one. If you know Jesus today, you better be glad Jesus is merciful to his enemies because you were born one. In a world at war with God, your own sin made you, every day you lived your life before Jesus, increasingly his enemy. And if you're saved, he loved you anyway. And if you're not saved, get saved. Because you will never, you will never have anyone love you more. You will never have anyone give you more. You will never have anyone save you from more than the one who saves you from the very wrath of God. If you will turn from your sin and trust him, he is merciful to his enemies. And then finally, a master's demand. Peter, put it away. Put your sword into its sheath. I Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, Jesus knew his mission was one of sacrifice, not triumphalism in conflict. Christian friend, Know what you believe and why you believe it. Earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints as we are told to do in the book of Jude. But do not believe for a moment that Jesus needs you to defend him. Put away your fishing knife the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings and lord of lords, maker of heaven and earth, the one by whose will the universe holds together does not need you to spring to his defense. He invites you to share the story of his salvation. Every now and then I'll hear someone say, well, you know, Christianity is not but one generation from dying out. I'm wondering what Jesus they think they're talking about. Because the Jesus who is said that on the rock of the truth that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus can take care of himself. But he has invited us to share his gospel. Put another way, if Malchus came to faith in Christ later, I bet it wasn't Peter who led him to Jesus. How you doing there, guy? Imagine it took somebody else to lead Malchus to Jesus because Peter had lopped his ear off. And that can be a little to come back from. Even this week. As I shared with you before, as a noteworthy political event has given many of us a thing we have long prayed for, if we see our ultimate victories in political terms, we will miss our ultimate victories. In fact, we're fighting the wrong battle. Our battle is for the souls of people. Our victories are when people come to faith in Christ and our assignment first and foremost among others is to tell people about Jesus. Put away your knife and drink the cup of sacrifice along with our savior and own your role, not as one of his bodyguards but as one of his ambassadors. And if you don't know him, The only means whereby you will ever be right with God is that you would turn from your sin and trust him by faith. Waste no more time. Come to Jesus.